All right, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn in them with me now to Exodus 35. Today's message is about comfort and strength and hope for weary and sick and discouraged and condemned Christians. And we must begin to find this hope by reading the text together. We are going to read over a hundred verses now. And so let us give our attention to the living word of God. Exodus chapter 35 verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Ur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence and knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to the work. And they received from Moses all the contributions that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contributions for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. He made 50 loops on the one curtain, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another, and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with clasps, so the tabernacle was a single whole. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the one set and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. 
And he made 50 cloths of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single whole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ramskins and goatskins. Then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus, 20 frames from the south side, and he made 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, he made 20 frames and there 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle, westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they were separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end, halfway up the frames, and he overlaid the frames with gold and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen with cherubim skillfully worked into it. He made it and for it he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework and its five pillars with their hooks. He overlaid their capitals and the fillets were of gold, but their five bases were of bronze. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it a hand breadth wide and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table. Its plates and dishes for incense and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. 
He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And he made its seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it and made two rings of gold on it under its molding on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. He made all its utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and the fillets were of silver. And for the north side, there were hangings of a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars, their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and the fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of 50 cubits, their 10 pillars and their 10 bases. The hooks of the pillars and the fillets were of silver. And for the front to the east, 50 cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate were 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side, on both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twined linen, and the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals was also of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver, and the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It was 20 cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number. Their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver. And all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around were of bronze. 
These are the records of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the testimony as they were were recorded at the commandment of Moses. The responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Ur of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. All the gold that was used for the work in all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca, a head that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. A hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent a base. And for the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it and all the utensils of the altar, the bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs around the court. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his holy word this morning. Thank you. It feels like I should be applauded after all of that. (laughs) Friends, today we have a choose-your-own-adventure for our opening illustration. And here's why. I am aware that many pastors and theologians are huge Lord of the Rings geeks and that they use Lord of the Rings illustrations way too much. Now, I think that I have avoided this. In fact, it is true that I've not used a single Lord of the Rings illustration in over five years. But that is not because I don't have many to share. And so here's the question for us. Are we Lord of the Rings illustration people or not? This morning, I actually have two illustrations, one from Lord of the Rings and one not. And you, my friends, get to choose. We are congregational for this morning alone. So, by A or nay, all those in favor of Lord of the Rings, please say aye. Aye. All opposed, say nay. Nay. All right, we're going with it. That, that, that's really good news because all I had was a Dr. Seuss illustration instead of that. So, so this is going to be much, much better. Okay, listen. Let me summarize the Lord of the Rings canon for all of you. There are good guys and there are bad guys. Hobbits, good. Men, good most of the time. Aragorn the king, good. Elves, good. Dwarves, good. Gandalf the wizard, very good. Friendship, Good, loyalty, good, the Shire, very good. And then there are some bad guys. Sauron, very, very bad. Not to be mistaken with Saruman, also bad, but not quite as bad. Orcs, bad and very ugly. Wormtongue, bad, kind of creepy. Shelob, bad, and if you don't like spiders, maybe the worst of all. Gollum, very bad, and yet strangely cute at times as well. But yes, very, very bad. The Lord of the Rings is a fight 
between good and evil. It's a long story because all good stories are. It is long because there are no quick answers to the problems of life. Loyalty is proven over time. Sacrifice is best when it feels most costly. The enjoyment of good is greatest when contrasted with the very real and deeply felt pain of evil and loss. So yes, it is a long story, but it is an epic adventure and an epic journey. And there are many times in the journey when it seems like all hope is lost, like the light is fading, the darkness is winning, that the end would be very bleak, or in the words of Sam and Frodo, that there would be no return journey home to the Shire, that it was all going to end in the shadow of Mount Doom. But it is in the midst of all of this darkness, it is in the midst of this long journey that Sam and Frodo together remember the Shire, their home, the the place where the journey began. The, The Shire was a place of peace, a place of hope, a place of rest. It's a place marked by the joy of friendship and relationship and abounding in feasting celebration. It is a place where you share the best meals, retell the best stories, and smoke some of the best pipe tobacco. Can I get an amen, Evan? Amen. Yes. <laughs> Sam and Frodo are in the shadow of Mount Doom, but under the watchful eye of Sauron, while being within earshot of thousands of evil orcs hunting them down, it's when they're feeling this evil winning that Frodo and Sam remember the Shire. They remember where they came from and they call themselves to believe where they are still going. And it is that picture of the Shire in their minds that gives them strength to move forward through the darkness. Friend, let me ask you a question. Are you tired this morning? Do you feel as if you are living in the shadow of Mount Doom? Are you physically sick? Are you relationally lonely? Are you anxious? Are your feet tired? Do you feel like the evil eye of Sauron is always on you and those that you love? Listen, if you are in darkness this morning, these hundred verses that we just read, they are for you. They have strength and power for your weary and discouraged soul. Now, now listen, we've already studied each and every part of this, these hundred verses in detail. We've already studied Aholiab and Bezalel and their artistic ability. We've already studied the Ark of the Covenant and the lamp and the altar and the bronze basin. We, we studied all of those things when God had given initial instruction about them in all of the preceding chapters. And so now, with them building it, rather than studying each of these things together in greater detail, we're going to zoom out a little bit this morning. We're going to zoom out and we're going to consider uh, the text in a little bit less of an immediate way, and we're going to consider the, the whole biblical theology of this thing called the tabernacle and how it is a picture of heaven and of God's ultimate desire to return us to the shire, to give us comfort in the hope of heaven. That's my one goal today. That's my main idea, and it is my earnest prayer for each and every one of us, friends, that we would find strength by remembering the hope of heaven today. 
that we would find strength by remembering the hope of heaven. And, and in order to consider this, we have two points. Point number one, the need for strength. And point number two, the hope of heaven. Point number one is the need for strength. Listen, when it comes to choosing people for an epic journey and adventure, hobbits as short little people with zero fighting ability are no one's first choice. Hobbits are gardeners, not fighters. They are not physically impressive people. They are weak and small. And so are the people of Israel. Listen, as strange as it may sound, I am very thankful for the picture of Israel as seen in the book of Exodus. This is indeed an epic adventure before us, and Israel is not fit for the journey. No one would choose Israel to be their traveling companion on a long adventure like this. They they are weak and unstable. Though they are numerically large, their story is one marked by pain and sorrow and a whole lot of failure along the way. And listen, I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for them because they are a picture of me. And friends, they are a picture of you. And their weakness should remind us of our own weakness and our own need for strength. And so friends, church family, think about the Israelites with me. Think about them and please identify with them this morning. And even more than just our text here today, although there's plenty of evidence of their weakness and need in our text today with the building of the altar and its significance about their sinfulness and the curtains that are created and how they separate them from the holiness of God. There's there's plenty that we could see in our immediate text. But, But more than just the text, think about the Israelites and how they have suffered thus far. Think about their lives which have not been easy. Think about their past. They are just about three months out of 400 years of slavery. They have been owned by their oppressors. They had most certainly been physically and emotionally abused. Their identities had been stolen. Think about the lasting trauma that they must have dealt with emotionally and relationally. Friend, how about you? Do you have trauma in your your life? I know that we can overuse that term trauma these days, but for some of us, it's a very real term. Trauma's real. Were you abused? Were you mistreated? Was... Was your identity stolen by the cruelty of other people around you? Think about the sorrow of Israel. Even as they have great reason to celebrate because Yahweh is on their side, think about the the grief that they must have felt. All, All of those years of life lost in slavery, and even more than that, think about the the death and the loss that they have experienced since escaping from Egypt. Certainly there were people who died along the way that they missed. Certainly some were sick. Some some had died because of the plague of God's judgment a few chapters before this. Friends, how about you? Are you dealing with grief? Are you grieving the loss of someone that you love? Has someone died and do you miss them? Or are you caring for someone who is very sick and is your heart heavy with grief for them? Think about the religious confusion that Israel must have felt. 
Yes, they, they, they were to worship Yahweh alone, but they had been indoctrinated into the ways of Egypt for decades. And so think about the spiritual whiplash that they must have felt. How about you? Are you a new or a newer Christian? And do you still feel like it's really confusing to know what is right and wrong in this Christian life? Is it, is it hard for you to remove your old way of thinking and to, to fully identify with the church? Think about the anxiety that Israel must have felt about the future. It's very clear that they still have enemies all around them. And, and more than that, they are in the desert. They, they're not yet in the promised land. And so think about how, how anxious they must have been tempted to be. Mothers fearing for their children. Leaders fearing for provision and protection. Would they be able to fight against the unknown enemies that would still come? Friend, how about you? Are you anxious about the future? Do you feel like the Israelites and that you have zero control over your life? And does that terrify you? Do you, do you look at the country? Do you look at the world? And do you just want to hibernate for a couple decades until it's all over? Think about how the Israelites are in the wilderness. Listen, they're not in a happy place in life. They're in a desert. It's dry. There's little water for refreshment. There are few beautiful things to look at. It feels barren. How about you? Are you spiritually dry? Are you depressed? Do you struggle with doubt on a daily basis? Has, has the world lost its beauty to you? Does life feel gray? Is your marriage a barren wasteland? Are you battling barrenness and infertility as a couple? Friends, think about how condemned Israel must have felt. They had just committed one of the most grievous acts of idolatry ever committed in chapter 32. They must have felt such shame. How about you? Have you messed up really bad? Did you make mistakes in recent days that you feel guilt and shame about? Friends, this is who the Israelites were. They, they were weak and they were beaten down. They were not strong. They were not impressive. If, if you were to look at them, you wouldn't choose them for a, for a playground game of basketball, let alone an epic journey that requires strength and endurance. And listen, I am pretty sure that every one of us, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, feel the same way about ourselves. We wouldn't choose ourselves either. Most of us, because of our sin, because of the trauma, because of our trials, and because of our physical weakness and sickness, many of us would say, I'm just a hobbit. I'm just a hobbit. I'm not impressive. We would say like Bilbo, hobbits are little folk. They seem of little importance. They are neither renowned as great warriors nor counted among the very wise. But friends, this is all of us. Every single one of us we are little folk, not equipped for the hard journey of life that is in front of us. There is great need for strength. And friends, that brings us to our second point, point number two, the hope of heaven. Christian, when was the last time that you thought about heaven? 
When was the last time that in the midst of your trauma and pain and sorrow, you considered how God has made you not ultimately for this life in this world, but for a far better life in a far better world. A world, listen, where all of the beautiful imagery of the tabernacle comes to life. A world where the cherubim and angelic beings are not just sewn into the fabric, but are physically flying around the throne of God, proclaiming that he is holy, holy, holy. A world where there's not just a candlestick that looks like the tree of life, but there's the actual tree of life available to all for, to partake. A world where, where the bread of the presence is not just a, a piece of furniture with, with 12 loaves of symbolic bread on it, but where the marriage supper of the Lamb is forever enjoyed with great feasting and joy and abundance with God. A world where the blue, cos the blue curtains of the tabernacle are not just symbolic of the new cosmos, but where there is an entirely new world without sin, without brokenness, without sickness, without any more cancer, without suicide, without pain of any kind, a world where the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God's presence is not restricted in the Holy of Holies behind a curtain, but is spread over all the world and which in the book of Revelations is described as the Holy of Holies on a cosmic level. When was the last time you thought about heaven, friend? Listen, these are not 100 boring verses. These are 100 soul-strengthening and spirit-reviving verses for our lives. They are verses which help us in our suffering and in our pain and in our trauma. All, all of the imagery of the tabernacle, every piece of furniture in the tabernacle, it's supposed to point us, first of all, back to the Garden of Eden. We've seen that all the way through. And it is supposed to point us forward to the new heavens and the new earth, a picture of the perfect world that God has created. L listen to the psalmist from Psalm 78. He says that he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. The, the psalmist explicitly says that God had Moses build the sanctuary like the high heavens and like the earth. And listen, we, we see this connection to Eden and to the created world even more when we consider how in the book of Exodus, in the chapters preceding this, God instructed Moses on how to build the tabernacle and he did it in seven phases. There are seven times where it says God said to Moses and then he gives clear creative direction. Friends, that is supposed to remind us of the creative seven days at the very beginning. And then, and then look at Exodus chapter 39 verse 43. Chapter 39 verse 43. When Moses is done constructing the tabernacle, it says, And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Friends, doesn't that sound a whole lot like when God looked at the creation that he had made on the seventh day and it says that he said it was good and he blessed it? The tabernacle in all of these many details and verses is to remind us of the perfection of Eden. In fact, one commentator says that the tabernacle is a micro-Eden. 
Another commentator says that the place of worship is a scaled-down cosmos. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, reveals what would have been the pervasive Jewish perspective of that day when he says, every one of these objects is intended to recall and represent the nature of the universe. And so listen, as, as boring as some of these details might seem to you at first, they are almost all pointing back towards Eden and forward to the glorious hope of heaven. And we know that even more, not just because of what we read here, but because of the theology of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews in the New Testament, this is the next book that we're going to preach through in a few weeks after the book of Exodus. Hebrews is written in order to give strength to weary and tired Christians. And listen, one of the primary ways that Hebrews does that is by talking about how temporary and passing the tabernacle was and how permanent heaven will be. Listen to these words from Hebrews 8 when, when speaking about the practical details of the tabernacle. It says this, it says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the whole tabernacle system was simply a microcosm. It was a, a miniature form of a, of a far greater reality. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, listen, for Christ has not has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are just copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Do you see? He is saying that the tabernacle was good. It was given by God. But in reality, it's just a, a small picture of something so much better that is coming. Something that you and I need very badly. The hope of heaven. There's this moment in the Lord of the Rings movies, I think it's in the extended edition, when things are very dark. Things are not in a good place. It doesn't seem like Frodo and Sam are going to succeed on their mission. It seems like all is lost. The shadow of Mount Doom is dark and long. The eye of Sauron is painfully present. Frodo and Sam are tired. They, their feet hurt. Their bodies are breaking down. They can't remember the taste of food. They have no hope before them. And then... Samwise pulls out this little box from his bag. It's a simple little box, and inside of it is salt from the Shire. It's a memory of what once was and what he still hoped would be, and he holds onto that box through the entire journey in order to comfort and strengthen him in the difficulty. A taste of the Shire kept him strong. Friends, that is why God gave Israel the tabernacle. The tabernacle is like that little box for Israel. It's a little picture of what once was in Eden and what will certainly return to be again in the days to come. It's a picture of Eden and a picture of heaven, a picture of the glorious reality that God will dwell with man again. And listen, pain and death will be no more. God put this little box of a tent at the center of Israel's life so that they could find the strength that they desperately needed to endure through life. Christian, 
Do you remember the Shire? Do you remember what you were made for? And do you remember where you are most certainly going by God's grace? Listen, God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 25 at the beginning of these instructions, he said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Christian, do you see how that sanctuary was just a faint picture of the eternal place that God speaks of in Revelation 21 when it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Listen, he will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Christian, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christian, you will not always weep. You will not always need to endure. Christian, you will not always have to persevere through pain and sadness. Christian, trauma will not always be the lens through which you view life. Grief will not always weigh heavily upon you. Darkness will not always be your experience. Christian, light is coming. The tabernacle is supposed to remind us of, of where we are going together. Like Frodo and Sam, the, the Israelites had a, had a constant object to look at and, and to remind them. They had this, this constant visual in their midst that told them that they were created for a glorious purpose and that God was faithfully sustaining them towards that glorious end. But church, listen, we do not just have an object to look at. We have a person to look at. Heaven is not just a pipe dream. Heaven is not just wishful thinking or positive emotions. No, it's a guarantee. How do we know it? Because of Jesus. Because according to John chapter 1, Jesus literally tabernacled among us. He dwelt with man. He became the greatest picture of God dwelling with humanity Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he wasn't talking about the tabernacle or the temple. He was talking about his own body because he is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. And even though he would die, he would be raised to life again, conquering death once and for all. Heaven is not a pipe dream because Jesus said something greater than the temple is now here. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple Christian. He is your resting place this morning. And so listen, if you're weary and if you're tired, if you don't feel like you can go on, if life is dark, then cling to Jesus. You don't need to cling to a salt box like Sam and Frodo. You don't need to look at a tent in the wilderness. You, you can look at a person. You can look at Jesus. Phil Riken says, therefore, not only is Jesus identified with the temple because he is assuming the role of the sacrificial system through his death, but he is also now, instead of the temple, Listen, the unique place on earth where God's revelatory presence is located. God is manifesting his glorious presence in Jesus in a greater way than it was ever manifested in a physical temple structure. 
Christian, find strength today by remembering the hope of heaven and find it first in the face of Jesus Christ. Heaven awaits you because of Jesus. No matter your circumstances, no matter your level of pain and sorrow or trauma, your future is bright and your future is secure. One of the greatest truths in the New Testament is that Jesus made it explicitly clear to his disciples that he is going to return. He's coming back, friends. He ascended to the Father. He's seated at the right hand of the Father even in this moment, but there is coming a time soon when King Jesus will return. And he will return as a triumphant warrior riding on a horse. And when he does, listen, he will bring an end to all of our pain, all of our sorrow, all of our condemnation, all of our regret, all of our shame. And he will bring us joyfully into the new heaven and the new earth. And what a day it will be. And oh, how that day is supposed to strengthen us on this day. Which, friends, is why... Jesus said even during the communion meal that he would not eat of the bread or drink of the cup again until he returned. When Jesus gave us the communion meal, he was encouraging us to look expectantly for him. The the communion meal is like Sam and Frodo's salt box. It is one of the ways that we get a taste of heaven today in order to strengthen us for the sorrows of today. So friends, can I invite you to to stand with me 